Back to another episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I am joined by Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Good to be with you again, friends, as we bring you another installment of our true crime series. And today we are talking about the Clutter Family Murder that would go on to become a book and a film known as In Cold Blood. Or as they say in Indiana, encode blood. Encode <laughs> blood. So, this is the code cool. red. It's altered our conversations. Yeah. Uh, initial thoughts. Uh, I'm just going to throw out really quickly um, that I'm Grizzly Abner. Not joking. Did um, we do introductions? <laughs> I, um, I had never seen In Cold Blood. I've never read In Cold Blood, but I've seen the film Capote. So that gets me somewhere. How many times have we watched First Blood? Uh, I watch I watch Rambo and Rambo three more than First Blood. The First Blood's a good one. Yeah, I've seen it more. Um, so yeah, I was thankful for the opportunity to check this out. Uh, this when I was in college, my dad mailed movies to me at least once a week. This was one of them. I lived with you. I remember. Yep. Your dad was Netflix before. Netflix. <laughs> yes. 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 Yep. Absolutely. It was a nice way for us to keep in touch once I moved away to school and uh, this was one of the movies he sent and I can remember uh, being wowed by it and I because I really wasn't familiar with the case and uh, I'm looking forward to covering it because even though the case itself isn't up towards the top of most people's list when they talk about true crime when you dig into this you realize that both the book and film changed the whole genre Mm-hmm. as we know it today, because it's a, a whole industry now, and this was one of the big jump starters to that. Absolutely. I had never, I wasn't familiar with this in any way, shape, or form. But I'm total virgin with it. Okay. I've, Thanks for coming I've, out. I have to follow that. <laughs> um, trying to think, uh, I, I, I don't think it's been that long ago since I watched the film, but this one's been, um, it's weird, In Cold Blood, Helder Skelter were two movies I pretty much watched whatever I wanted. My mom did not want me to watch either of those films. And I think it's because the, I don't know if, if she watched the films or what the case was, but uh, obviously both, both things impacted her. Um, and I would imagine um, my mom, whose birthday is today, uh, born in the forties. So she would have, uh, I think this is probably around the time um, she would have been having my, my brother. So that's her first child. So I imagine it shook a lot of people, the fact uh, that a small community, um, that they find a whole family dead the next day, uh, uh, that probably never even locked the doors uh, in, in the community. So and then Helder Skelter right around the same time. So I imagine um, that's probably what kind of made the impact. So Definitely. Well, and this was one of the earlier cases that went national. They often didn't. So like you go back and look at something like a case like Albert Fish. People didn't know about Albert Fish, yeah, people except locally. He was a monster there. But yeah. that, I mean, for one, it was so gruesome and taboo that it didn't grab headlines. But this case did. 
um, even before there was a book or movie, uh, just because it was unfortunately a sign of, of things to come in many ways with the vicious nature of the crimes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Professor, you are our tour guide through the macabre as we talk about true crime. Well, I am weird, so I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so, if you would, please, take us away. Sure. In the early morning hours of November, of a November Sunday in 1959, a vicious crime took place in a rural home just outside the small farming community of Holcomb, Kansas. Leaving little of a surviving family in the community devastated, it was uh, quickly one of the worst crimes to ever occur in the state. It, I, imagine it still is. Um, while the crime was vicious, what sets this episode apart is really what happens after the crime as opposed to the crime itself and the apprehension. Uh, but we'll dig right into that. Um, the Clutter family is, uh, consisted of Herb, the father who was a very prosperous farmer in the area. I think he dealt with wheat. I'm not sure. It's not one of those facts that it's on Wikipedia. Kansas easily. is pretty famous for wheat, so yeah. that would be my guess. Um, along with his wife, Bonnie, their two elder daughters, uh, Eviana and Beverly, had moved out and started their adult lives. And then their two younger children, teenagers Nancy, uh, age 16, and Kenyon, age 15, uh, were high school students at the time and still living there. Um, in the early morning hours of November 15th, two intruders arrived in their Holcomb home, located the uh, family, and entered through... Well, sorry, out of order, <laughs> entered through an unlocked door while the family slept, located them, uh, and proceeded to grill them about a safe. Tell us where the safe is. Yeah, we want to know where the safe is. I want to know where to go then. Yep. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have a safe to lead them to, uh, but ultimately, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, but they so they restrained all members of the family throughout the house, tying them up, uh, including tying Herb up over a rail, his arms behind him. Uh, and just ransacking the home, uh, looking for not only the safe, but any kind of money or anything uh, that they could locate. Um, ultimately, they did not find anything uh, but minimal amounts. If I may, I'm sure you're probably going to say it later, but they had received this tip from someone in prison. Yes, that's how they get caught. Yeah. yeah. Were you, were you going to bring that up mm -hmm. later? Okay. Okay. I didn't want to step on your toes. No, no worries. No, but you did. <laughs> Let's start over. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so they, they go through the house, they find nothing, and it had been debated and discussed prior to, and again, there in the spot in front of the family, that they wanted to leave no witnesses. And so uh, they slit the throat of the father and then uh, shot him in the head with a shotgun and then proceeded to go around, shoot the two children in the head with a shotgun, and then... Um, the mother last, uh, who just, it's not really relevant to the story, just another element of, of sad to it is yeah. the mother had really struggled in life mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of depression and things around the home. And so it's just, I don't know, it always kind of bothered me that she got to be last. Yeah. Just this kind of tough existence over the last number of years and with the children leaving and things, and she gets to listen to her family be wiped out. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty horrific. And the, I think, you know, it's just to make it extra despicable, here's what they left the house with. This is what they accomplished. A small portable radio belonging to the son, Kenyon, a pair of binoculars belonging to Herb, and approximately $50. These four lives were snuffed out for that. Um, <clears throat> so this crime obviously rocked this small community um, and immediately put law enforcement on their toes. 
Um, yeah, pillars of the community. You know, yeah. Herb, very well respected. Again, as you said, a very prosperous farmer. Um, very well known in their church and philanthropic type stuff that they did. The daughter, Nancy, a uh, very social butterfly kind of person. Um, you know, life of the party, as they would say. And so, um, yeah, it impacted the community deeply. It's not like these were just some like homebody farmers. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it still would have been tragic if they were, but regardless, sure. To, yeah. To say that these were people that were really held highly in the community, um, got the police to work pretty quick. Yeah. And two, I mean, this ties into the book that we'll touch on. It's very in depth and you get to know all of the characters in it, including the victims. And so, there's a, a different truth to this than there usually is a lot of times because, you know, there's that cliche with victims. They didn't have an enemy. You really get to know this family in Capote's writing, and, and they really didn't. Yeah, right. I mean, they were loved in their community. Yeah. There wouldn't have been um, an enemy. And they, there were rumors that swirled around about the father being in debt um, and getting involved with their own people, but that was all bullshit. Right. Um, <clears throat> Nothing ever panned out from that. Um, any uh, any thoughts from you guys initially that you'd like to share before I move on to how we no, catch uh, the scum? Uh, I was kind of kind of surprised by the story as I I watched the movie first, and then after I watched the movie, I kind of went back and and did a little bit of research into it. I tend to like to do it in that order for some reason when I'm not familiar, but. It was such a savage killing, but on the other hand, I was kind of surprised that it had the notoriety that it did, because house robbery gone wrong or whatever isn't that uncommon of a crime, sadly. So I guess it just didn't have the shock value on the surface that I would have thought. I, don't get me wrong. Home invasion, you get murdered. That's awful. But even in the movie, there's almost a casual feel. Yes, that's a good word. Yeah, and that's and I think that kind of fits with what the the story really centers around because it's not and I I don't it's not a glamorous story. It's not you know what I mean. I'm not to glorify it, but you know you know what I'm getting at. It's just not that. Dressed up, I don't know, glitzy, whatever. It's an interesting element to it because that was the crime. It was casual. I mean, it's a good point because it's kind of what makes it even more sad. There's there's no elevated thing to latch on to. Yeah, there's there's not a there's not a guy leading it telling you that he's Jesus Christ. Go out and kill for me. There there's (laughs) not a lunatic with a mouthful of rotten teeth. Who's a Satan worshiper or climate? You know yeah. what I mean? It, it's There's none no of that. Uncontrollable it, sexual rage. Right. It's just, it's just a couple of douches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who got out of jail and committed a horrible crime based on jailhouse rumors yeah. that they were told, and so it just it's tame in that respect, but it, it is absolutely horrific. And that's what's interesting too is, and I, I, I know I'm stepping on your toes, Professor, but I've been here for. But I mean, it's interesting because that's what drew Capote to the case was that it was so like casual in the article that he read about it, like a, I don't know, 
barely even like a 40 word article yeah, or something. Little thing in the New York Times. Just a little blurb in the New York Times. Family murder. Da, da, da. And he's like, well, that's weird. You know, like it was that, it was almost the casualness that drew him to it because mm-hmm. it was, while it was tragic, it wasn't treated like a big deal. Right. And he's like, this is strange. I want to go learn more about this. Well, and I, and I think the criminals as well, they, there's nothing fascinating about these guys. No. You know, it, it, with, with Gacy, there was, there was those weird things that is, because I think a lot of us, when we're drawn to true crime, it is about understanding the mind of a madman mm-hmm. that kind of draws us to it, the psychology, and that this is completely void of it. Yeah. And as we'll get into here in a second, it's it's two dipshits. Yeah. Two underwhelming human beings. Literally, it, there's just a means to an end. They're trying to get money. This isn't mo- there's no psychology motivating this. They're just losers trying to get strike it big and, and flee. Dumber than Otis and Henry Lee Lucas? No. And can I get one of those awful Gacy versus movies, but with these two pairs of guys? <laughs> I, uh, uh, the Three Stooges did that. <laughs> I would say it would probably be another forgotten about, because, again, the, the fact that it happened almost a decade prior, I'm sure if, if the book and movie never came out, my mom would have never heard about this. No. Because no. obviously when I look at it, that's probably when it became on the radar because it's right on top of the Manson murders too, which that was, that was very national news. Um, but Ed, Ed Gein is a great example because I've heard her talk about it, but more of the rumors to where um, every town had this guy living there. I mean, she didn't go into detail. So she probably heard like, just somebody's read half the story, repeated it. And I'd say probably the one killer is probably what sold the story. Cause uh, I know the one guy's kind of flirtatious with everybody. And I think that he did that why um, Capote was interviewing him. Yeah. And so I think he kind of glorified, not necessarily the killing, but I think that... Um, he, he got close with him. Yeah. Turned him on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, were you, were you going to mention other suspects at all before we no. get to... Okay. Real briefly. Um, so they started going through, oh my God, who could have done this? Well, the first thought is they have to ask the two older daughters who have moved away because just like a day before the murder happened, um, Herb had taken out life insurance policies on the whole family. And they're like, well, the only benefactors would be the two daughters. So let's look into that. And of course they're wrecked and like devastated and obviously have sound alibis. And they're like, okay, let's just cross that one off. Let's yeah. not bring that up again. I don't even think <laughs> like we had to ask, but yeah. I can't remember. I don't think the movie, I don't know if the book does or not, but I feel like most things don't even mention the two daughters because it upset them so bad. And, yeah. and they weren't really, I mean, they weren't there that night and, so I think the movie, I don't even know if it mentions that they had maybe to. Maybe you want to keep it quiet so people wouldn't go harass them if they knew there were two survivors of the family like that. Well, and that's the thing. Um, I think Nancy, so Nancy was kind of seeing a guy, and Herb wasn't crazy about him. And so they're like, well, maybe he's mad that Herb doesn't like him and he killed him. And so they interviewed him and like the, the investigator was like, it's definitely not this kid. Right. But I think it was him or someone else had to leave town because like they were just so anxious to funnel their anger and fear and frustration into somebody that like one, of, I can't, it may have been him. One of the suspects had to move away because they were just like, well, it was definitely him. And they would just not leave him alone about it. Yeah. Um, and then one other one was that Herb had a business partner and uh, for something. And they thought, well, maybe he did it to get money from Herb. And I think it was maybe the debt thing that you had brought up mm-hmm. briefly. And it totally wasn't that. Yeah. So just a few suspects that I had heard about. 
Yeah, um, glad you mentioned it because I didn't cover any of, much of their investigation, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it didn't take long, as we'll get to here. Yeah, so they left little behind at the crime scene, with the exception of some bloody footprints, uh, each of our two killers. Um, and the, the problem is they left a witness, and they tell them that at the interrogation, but it wasn't a witness that was at the crime. It was somebody that they had been in prison with. And so within six weeks of the murders, we have our two killers arrested. Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith were arrested. Uh, Hickok and Perry recently paroled, uh, had learned from a fellow inmate about the Clutter family. Was, uh, you all right in there, Grizzly? Uh, um, Floyd Wells was the inmate that they knew, and uh, he had talked about working with Herb in the past and that he was a wealthy farmer. And it basically led these two there. They had planned uh, specifically to target this farmer and because he'd have a safe and a bunch of money in there. He was a rich farmer. Uh, unfortunately, for you know what, let's say fortunately, because they were going to kill him no matter what. Um, there was no money there because it, it was no secret that Clutter wrote checks. He, he didn't have a bunch of cash. Oh, you mean he used a bank like a civilized human being? Right. Um, <laughs> So mattresses stuff, hundred dollar bills. Yeah, they uh, the guy that had been in prison with him had uh, sorry, breaking my concentration there. Um, <clears throat> snap my fingers. I've never taken you guys into combat. <laughs> it sounded like the Tin Man moving around back there. <laughs> um, so this this inmate had told him about that, and then he immediately, when he learned of the crimes, felt guilty and went to the warden. And maybe not feeling guilty. Maybe he was looking to get a deal out of it and get out of prison. I don't know. Uh, as well as nobody really knows what conversations transpired between them while in prison. That if this guy was even telling him he should rob him or if he was just talking about his past and his job working for him. Uh, I would uh, lean on the cynical side. <laughs> I would imagine he was telling him to, to go rob him. Uh, but didn't necessarily think that they blow all their heads off with a shotgun, and then was like, ah, maybe I should speak ah. up. So the warden uh, that he talked to immediately got on the phone with the investigators, and I guess that within six weeks, they, this is like a, it's a challenge here. Um, within six weeks, they arrested them in Las Vegas. During that time, the two had been uh, writing bad checks uh, on purpose, overwriting for a bunch of cash, and uh, letting Hickok do the smooth talking, and you know, fleecing these yeah, businesses. Who, in Dick Hickok? Yeah. Uh, could have had a, <laughs> could have had a different career path if he chose. But... <laughs> Was he writing bad checks so that he could, they could send care packages to Henry and Otis? <laughs> Whoa. That's good. I that. Now that would be a reality. Show. That's a crossover. Uh, so yeah, they were caught pretty quickly. The interrogation wasn't too difficult because, they were idiots. Uh, quickly, Hickok turned on Perry, saying that he'd done it all. And uh, throughout this, they they leaned into him assuming all of the ownership for killing them um, because he thought. I think Perry said that Dick's mom was a real nice lady, and he didn't want her to have to live with that. Either way, uh, it, it got national attention. Um, the court case did, but it was pretty quick. All of this was pretty quick. Pretty and, open and shut. Yeah. Um, and Kansas doesn't mess around. And they were, I think, the last state at that point that were hanging people mm. for executions. Um, cheap. 
Yeah. I, yeah. And I want to say that this is off topic, but I think that at Nuremberg, they brought the main guy in from Kansas mm. to ensure the hangings went properly there. I may be wrong on that. I, I didn't have time to look that up, but I remember That's interesting. I think that, that that happened with those trials. I wonder if it was the same guy. Um, so yeah, April 14th, 1965, they were home. Um, and you look at the, the timetables on this, it's pretty quick compared to modern day. They say folklore holds that, uh, so that I think they hanged, um, Hickok first mm -hmm. and then Dick Hickok. <laughs> <laughs> And then the is that country uh, rat? What's his next name? <laughs> the other guy's name Perry. Perry. And um, they say that at the moment he was hanged, right there after midnight, that thunder and lightning cracked over Holcomb, Kansas. Hmm. And then Garth Brooks was born. <laughs> yeah, and then Garth Brooks emerged from his mother's <laughs> womb. But yeah, they say that that uh, that's what folklore holds is that when he was hanged, the moment he died in Holcomb, because like, that wasn't in Holcomb, Kansas, where they killed him, but in Holcomb, Kansas, thunder and lightning cracked. I had not heard that. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting too at the execution is um, Perry Smith was bothered that there were the surviving family members were not there. Mm. I don't know if he thought that that was part of what his life was being ended for, and he couldn't understand. I, I think he yelled something out, but I may be wrong on that. But he, I, I remember it in the book uh, that was dwelled on. They didn't want to come to the hanging. Uh, it's like <laughs> he's like, where were they at? He couldn't understand that. You know, why aren't they here? Mm. Actually, they don't want anything to do with this. You ruined their yeah. lives. Yeah. yeah, don't need any more on. So, uh, anything else before I jump into the book, real quick? Nope. No, I just think it's interesting. Um, and maybe you'll be able to tell me once we get into the book, cause it crosses over with the film. I, in the stuff I was reading and the podcasts I listened to, I did not hear, uh, was Perry really like, did he legit think he had treasure maps for Mexico? Uh, you talking about in the movie? Well, th did that cross over to real life? That actually is a nod to a movie he was in as a child, Blake Edwards. Oh, he's a he's a little boy in the treasure of Sierra. Madre. Okay, yeah, and so and they reference that because he pulls he brings it up. He's like, it's yeah. the one cute thing about the movie that they go back to multiple times. Okay, it's like a wink. Gotcha. At the time, I think more people realize that this guy had been a child in that movie because yeah. there's a scene where this kid comes up. I think he's selling something mm -hmm. uh, to Bogart in the bar. Okay, and so I. I don't think there was any truth to that. I okay. think that was just uh, much much better than what that. he's known for today. True. Which I'll let one of you guys co cover on that. We're talking about Robert Blake? Or yeah, I said Blake Edwards. Yeah, I was, <laughs> that's my Robert I was sitting here going, Who are we talking about? I was so confused. Yes, Robert Blake. Sorry. Gotcha. Yeah, so I'm just wanting to know is, is did anyone in their research was there any real life connect? Did he like really think he had treasure maps? The no. the actual guy. Yeah. Yes, no, Robert Blake actually, that part I remembered, yeah. he was the child actor. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah that's, okay. that's what you got from this whole thing. <laughs> that's, that's my <laughs> takeaway from the whole movie. And uh, this will be Grizz's last episode as he goes on a hunt for treasure. He's like, do you guys think that's, uh, uh, that's real? Any validity? As, you, uh, as you go into the book, so, uh, I was just I was curious. I don't Blake know. Edwards. When did the book come out? Because uh, I see 65, so did the book come out and then they were executed or the other way? Or do you know? No, 
they they were executed in 65. The book came out, I think, in January of 66. So that was 65? Yeah, he, no, because he was there for. Okay, maybe that. he wrote it during 65. Was he there when they were executed? No shit. Yep. Um, they covered a lot of ground, you know, in, in trying to lay low. You know, they had gone all the way. They'd been in Texas when they left Mexico. And I just love the idea that these two idiots went to Mexico with $40, $50. And they're like, all right, man, we'll go lay low in Mexico. We got all the money in the world. And they're like, I had to sell the car. Mm. The radio and the binoculars are gone, too. It's just like they just know. It's like one step above Steve Martin and the jerk. <laughs> I don't need anything except this ashtray. <laughs> That's the plan, guys. Yeah, and then they get busted in Vegas. And I don't think I really paid much attention either that um, that Truman Capote is not in the film, which I don't think he includes himself in the book either, though, right? There is a part where he's talking to an author at the Well, I think that's a, some, he's, that's a different character, though, I think, for the film. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not Truman Capote, but I just assumed that it was a nod to Truman Capote. Also, he was in the Truman Show. <laughs> with Blake Edwards <laughs> and Harry Truman was his father you guys are going to hear me whipping myself in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> um, a tear I, I, I heard him say it but I was like a tear no my my brain was going well, to be fair though, I was like who are we talking is that Perry about? is that Perry Edward is that the Perry Smith Perry in the in the movie was he play, did they change this is name? what happens when we don't drink <laughs> we think too much so, there's a there's a a tear just rolled down your dad's cheek right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Blake Edwards is the guy that did like all the Pink Panther movies. Oh, okay. So, cousin of Blake Lively. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So, Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, <laughs> on the case, was published the following January, uh, right after the execution. And it really birthed in many ways the whole industry of true crime yeah, uh, in the way that we know it because it was nonfiction, but it was in novel form. It mm -hmm. read like a fiction book. Um, it was a huge success. Still to this day, it's the best-selling true crime book of all time, only second to Helder Skelter, which we've already covered. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, which, well, that one was written fast, though, right? So these would have been back-to-back. -back. Yeah. Because, yeah, they... Elder Skelter was written even before like the trials were over, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, as mentioned before, he saw the small article in the New York Times, and he traveled to Holcomb right after the murder. So, I mean, he is there when it's fresh, and he goes with close childhood friend Harper Lee, author mm -hmm. of To Kill a Mockingbird, and they proceed to interview everyone in the area. Fun side story. Uh, if you've ever seen the world-famous film, To Kill a Mockingbird, the character of Dill in that film is said to have been inspired by Truman Capote. <laughs> so that but, weird that weird little kid, Dill, is supposed to be Truman Capote as a weird child who was friends with Harper Lee. Yeah, they, um, they compiled massive amounts of notes. I think they've said there were over 8,000 pages Good of God. notes from uh, interviews. He um, was also famous for never like taking notes in the moment. Like yeah. he could literally sit and have a conversation with you and go transcribe it later. And it would be like 90% accurate. And it shows in his writing either yeah. that or he just makes shit up. But uh, he's also been accused of yes, doing that in this book. Yes. It's uh, <laughs> very debatable with this one. Um, <clears throat> but he worked on this book up 
all the way to the killer's execution, uh, even forming friendships with them. Uh, I don't know the full story on it, but I believe, and I, again, this may be bullshit, but I had always heard that he spent money to have them not buried with the prison mm. and got them headstones. Wow. Um, but yeah, so the book, it's it's very rich in its narrative. Has anybody read it? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's really good. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's a lot of questions about if he left some things out that maybe painted them in a worse picture as he grew closer to them in the experience. Uh, and also there's been uh, people close to the case who flat out said, this didn't happen. This person didn't say that. That's bullshit. Uh, but all things aside, it's still a very important piece of writing um, because you truly get to know everyone involved. You spend time with the family before this happens. You get to know not just the criminals, the killers, you get to know their, their families, their friends, how it affected them, their testimonials, testimonials of members of the community and what they thought about the clutter family. It really is. It's, it's very rich. And in a way that you look at the writing of someone like Ann rule, mm-hmm. who, you know, just takes off in the seventies. So much of this stuff is coming from this book yeah. because this made money. Right. And so it really modeled in a lot of ways. Uh, how people would go on to cover cases and it created a market that made cases covered more and more because publishers are going to say, sure, this is going to sell. Let's do this. And so I think it's an interesting mixture of that and more televisions entering the home around when the crimes happen Mm -hmm. uh, for just the interest to grow that it's not as taboo or weird uh, to look into some of these things. It became more common in the living room. Um, and I think this book is a huge part of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just, I, I can't state enough the importance of this to true crime writing, whether some of it's false or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, um, uh, just want to mention real quickly, the movie happened very quickly. Uh, it came out the following year. Mm. So if you look at this in less than a decade, this family is murdered. They're caught, they're executed this best-selling book comes out and then this in just wonderful true crime film is made all in the span of eight years. Wow. You think about now with like, just take executions, uh, states that are doing that. It takes decades oh, yeah. to get to that. It's just, it's wild to think about the timetables on this, right. but, uh, I'll open up the table to any more on the book and then we'll jump into the movie. I think it's important to note um, the backgrounds of both of the killers. Not that it excuses anything, but um, you had uh, uh, Vinny. What's the name of the one guy? Robert Blake. Not Mandy. I'm trying to give you an alley. Oh, Dickenhoff. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to give you an alley up there, buddy. Uh, yeah, you got Richard Hickok. Too many names going around. <laughs> you got Richard Hickok, who um, they say was like a pretty normal guy, came from a normal background, but he suffered. Are you ready for it? A head injury, and they say it changed him. It doesn't, you know, doesn't explain away what he did. But what do we see in most serial killers? What happens to them at a young age? Head injury. Head injury. Right. And so then he, later in life, a lot of times their wieners don't work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Head injuries, setting fires, killing animals, wetting the bed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's that's kind of our big. There's a trifecta there, but I named four things. Maybe one is not. But anyways. Um, <laughs> He had suffered a head injury. I, I hope nobody listens to our show for hard facts. 
Hey, if they're interested in checking out the Pink Panther movies, <laughs> got something. If, uh, <laughs> this is an opinion podcast. But you, uh, you love Fox News. <laughs> Let's talk about pissing Don't your listen pants. To <laughs> so he suffered a head injury. He had had a wife and kids. He left them. They talk about that in the film. I hope you guys started saying that. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you say it, people believe it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Perry. Perry. Does that noise mean we're canceled? Yes. Perry Smith uh, had, as the film would go on to portray very well, um, an abusive childhood, abusive father, uh, alcoholic mother, real troubles there, too. So I think it's just interesting to, to at least point out the fact that the movie got that right. And with that with him, but also, you know, Hickok just kind of being a, just kind of only looking out for him, you know. And Perry's mom legit died a drunk, choking on her own vomit. Yeah, yeah. In her sleep. Yeah. So, I think it's a whole extra that I had that I wanted to bring up. Good times. Okay, let's dig into the movie. <laughs> I mean, we don't need to, to rehash. Did we have to watch the movie for this podcast? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh... Just thoughts on the movie? For, I want to hear from folks who haven't hadn't seen it before. We've talked a lot. Why don't you fellers talk a little bit? Well, uh, I think this might have been my second viewing, third. I think I watched it three times because uh, I think it came out on. Um, I feel like it's a movie that disappeared for like like Helder Skelter and stuff. Like these movies disappeared for quite a long time. I think. Uh, the one the video stores I worked at, um, I remember that it was like the first time that in so many decades or something they had put it out on like VHS. Um, or maybe we just picked it up because all these movies were coming out on similar things. But um, I definitely seen this early on. I don't think it was uh, until around when um, Scott Wilson died. I didn't realize that he was the guy playing um, – Yes, the, the greatest thing to accomplish here is to <laughs> teach people that uh, Scott Wilson was a great actor and not just a character on The Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. And then uh, I, I'm, again, my mom is, I feel like she's more familiar with the stuff around it because my mom has always said that the one guy, that, that's another reason she didn't want me to watch it, is that this movie was so much that the one actor was always... Um, not right after, which is weird because that's years before he was accused of murdering his wife. Mm -hmm. So, which would be Robert Blake. And Robert Blake, the funny thing about that is that when I first made my first connection that he was Mickey from Our Gang, the little rascals, it blew my mind. Because I, I grew up with the Farmer Four, so I am very familiar with very old television. Uh, and yeah, when I found out he was Mickey, that blew my mind. In the words of Dave Chappelle... Beretta did that shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm now on a list uh, as I got this, I think, from the library twice, but this time with a combination of the boss babies, so probably on some FBI list as we talk. Um, I hope they come get you. Uh, in fairness, though, it's, uh, it's worth it because it's the Criterion collection that they have, so there's um, this, uh, Criterion release is great. That uh, I can check out uh, when we're not talking about it, and I probably should have watched it prior, but you know, hey, hmm. I'm, I'm into to fluff movies right now. So. Um, within the first five minutes, I knew that we were in for a special cinematic experience because it was it took on the the qualities of what's known as the noir filming style, and within five minutes, I was like, 
Oh, Professor loved this movie. <laughs> Within five minutes, I knew. But that I, watched, was I watched this last of all the stuff we had to watch, and I was like, oh, I'm sure Robert's loving these pics. <laughs> Black and white. And... <laughs> it's interesting because I do, it's funny, I haven't seen many noir films. Um, you know, obviously my favorite is Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Directed by the great Charles, Charles Lawton. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that was a Lawton film. Of course I loved that. The kids drove him so nuts that that's the only movie he directed. I always think it's because of the kids. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, what What are some other, like, would you say, uh, landmark noir films? Maltese Falcon. Yeah, another favorite of mine. Okay, okay, we're on the right. I guess I do like noir films. Yes. <laughs> I put that on my... Uh, Marlowe character, and I mean, they even move them up into different generations, like the Long Goodbye, Altman's very acid-drenched L.A., but it's the same character. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, there that's a whole very deep topic. Like, one of my favorite movies of all time is Third Man, mm-hmm. uh, which is set in post-war Vienna. And it's you, the the traits of it. That's got a Criterion release, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I knew that's where I heard the it. The only movie that Duke Ward at Side One Record Store, he bought me that as a Christmas gift. Oh, yeah. Uh, R.I.P. to my man's Duke Ward. Yes, the elements of noir, noir, noir. is uh, very, it's frequently set at night, uh, and every character every character is despicable. Uh, you usually will have a femme fatale in there. That's not in here, but you're right. This does have a lot of elements of that, just basically because they're scum, mm-hmm. and it's very, most of it is set at night. Um, well, the way it's shot, I mean... Um, it would go on to influence hipster filmmaking oh, yeah. from then on. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, Tarantino borrows the styles of how this film was shot. Um, Wes Anderson goes on to borrow. P.T. Anderson goes on to borrow. It's just like, it's shot different P. than Barley. any film from that era. Yeah. Not every film from that area, but, but any popular film from that era. Yeah, you're, you're starting to get into... You're getting close to the, what they call the new Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, with Easy Rider. And the code, the Hayes code lifting. Yeah. 67 is around when that happens, when you're dealing with like Midnight Cowboy mm-hmm. X rating. And so this is more visceral than something even a few years earlier. And I want to make sure I mention, just so I don't forget, they filmed this on location. Literally within years of this tragedy happening, wow. they're in the home. These actors are portraying this, the, where this happened. The photos in the, in the movie are the real family. Wow! Yeah, the, so the the, uh, the shop. I think the shopkeeper is the same. The same shopkeeper. It's the same shop. And I think the only place that wouldn't allow was the prison. Wouldn't allow, so that was the set. Yeah, and so when you think about movies at that time, how different <laughs> that that is, and and so you really have a truly independent feel to this, mm-hmm. and what I've always admired the most about it, beyond those little nuggets, is Scott Wilson. He is magnetic in this. I mean, he's just, he embodies what this guy was described as, which was stupid, but charismatic. He was the talker of the two and he carries the movie. Um, And I want to share a story real quick that I talked to him while pissing. (laughs) So there's that. We were at a convention and I was in a urinal and in comes Scott Wilson and he's got people guarding him and they literally back up against him back to back. There's two of them with their backs against him while he's going to the bathroom at the urinal. And he just turns to me. I'm on his right. He goes, bit much, isn't it? 
I loved it. It was so great. I never went up to his table and got an autograph or anything, but I had that moment. So I was like, yeah, Scott Wilson talked to me at the urinal. <laughs> I thought he was the one. He uh, who was the one that wanted to race you at the urinal? Uh, that was Keith David. <laughs> After I, I was a volunteer that weekend, so I think he felt a little comfortable. And I, I had led him to the bathroom and showed him where it was. And then he happened to be in there later that day. And he goes, I'll race you. <laughs> Good. You have peed with so many I'm, yes. yeah. I'm actually working on a book. This is the announcement. <laughs> you should Kissing with the stars. podcast and just do stories that he's pissed with. <laughs> you have had your wiener out with lots of celebrities. Yes. <laughs> you ever pissed with R. Kelly. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Strike uh, that. From on, the a, on a pause real quick, should we do movie details? To be oh, right? Todd, please. Yeah, states and uh, details. Ankle Blood, obviously, is what we're talking about. 1967. Written and directed by Richard Brooks, obviously based off the book of Truman Capote. Robert Blake plays Perry. Scott Wilson plays Benny. Dick <laughs> uh, John Forsythe. Uh, and I, for this viewing, I guess I picked up that Quincy Jones does the soundtrack, which yep. um, probably people our age mostly know Quincy Jones from Thriller, which is sad, but... Uh, Those swinging 60s. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was going to say too is uh, I think I I think the first the first view and I don't even remember the second one was recently, and this one I think I just picked up even more that um, if you didn't know what this was, and just they did it because even the soundtrack it's almost like this weird jazzy oh yeah um, almost like if if it was just a certain way you could almost watch the movie of like did they really kill him or did somebody else come in because these guys are on this little road trip and picking up. Um, Grandpa and his little grandson and collecting Coke bottles. and <laughs> They're hanging out in the Dust Bowl with Gary Cooper and Drapes of Wrath. They're, uh, they're writing checks, and, uh, and, uh, and now Tom Hanks is after him. And... <laughs> uh, also, this viewing, I picked up, uh, just because I thought it was odd, was the when they're hitchhiking and there's two African-Americans that pull up on them, and they refuse to get in a ride because he comments that, man, they were getting ready to kill and rob whoever picked him up, but... They were going to do it to them just because they were of color. But the uh, gentleman in the back seat is Lamar Lundy from Richmond. What? Uh, yes, I did not realize that. Well, the fearsome foursome that yep. for the St. Louis Rams? Exactly. Holy so, shit. Um, yeah, did not realize that. Which uh, ties in with uh, our other documentary we watched about how uh, they really don't talk about things that they should in our uh, community because that's kind yeah. of a big deal. And he barely got a bridge named after him. Uh, if I'm allowed to say anything about this movie, uh, <laughs> shut up, nerd. Let's rewind a little bit since everybody just didn't let me talk. Uh, you said you were Hold a virgin. On, I'm playing the violin too loud. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to touch on what you had said about the new Hollywood coming mm -hmm. in shortly after mm -hmm. that. And that was one of the things that I noticed when I watched this is that it very much had that feel of old black and white movies from from an earlier era but i did pick up very quickly that oh but this isn't the content is not like that stuff from the 50s and the 40s like i could definitely feel that shit it was grittier it was more real you just wouldn't it just wouldn't have been that nobody was giving the old hollywood acting you <laughs> right. know what i mean like it, sure. it was nuanced it had depth and so I was, I was surprised by that because, I mean, obviously when it starts the black and white film, and I wasn't positive what year it had come out. So I was really, I think, kind of expecting something else, and it was a pleasant surprise that it wasn't. It wasn't as 
two-dimensional as some of that earlier stuff can be. Yeah, I, I, I think I, in hindsight it's a statement movie. I don't think the director was saying, we're here, this is a new kind of movie, but I think that's what you're looking at. It was inching there, because yeah, there were a couple spots where I was like, oh, shit. Uh, and it caught me off guard, because you're not used to that from, from films that look like this. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, too, as weird as it is to say now, but um, if you think about the films that were big at the time, Technicolor was real big, and <clears throat> like, um, it's weird that you would go black and white to be realistic, but if you think about Night of the Living Dead, Night of the Living Dead could have easily been in color as well, and it was just a few years later. Is Night of the Living Dead, even though it's in black and white, it actually feels, I think, more realistic than if it would have been crazy Technicolor, like, uh, all, like all the big musicals that were coming out, like Oklahoma and... Um, like they were pushing widescreen. That is a good point. That it, oh, yeah, it clearly had, probably was a choice to go <clears throat> So, so we're like the big uh, escape <clears throat> Holly. Like you know, you go see this big musical to escape for two hours, or this black and white gritty movie is like you know, damn. Yeah, I think it, it's dual dual purposing also because it's more somber. It fits the tone of the film. It's cheaper. I mean, and you're right, the last 15 years had just been drenched in all the gimmicks, Panavision, Technicolor, widescreen, just all, <laughs> all of those things. And so um, I, I think that it, it takes care of, of two things by that choice. Um, and also, I think that what helps drive the quality of this film was the book and its success. And the book was something new. And I think the director and and all the people behind making this wanted to match that with this. You didn't want to have this book that kind of changed the game and then come out with, uh, you know, just a forgettable movie. I think they really took that energy and ran with it and did a great job. If I'm not mistaken, language was something that caught, there was there was cur curse words in it I wasn't used to in movies that look like that. I was like, oh. So I did. It was a pleasant surprise for me. I think this one has uh, one of the the first times that they said bullshit in a movie. Oh, which again, a weird time because I think apologize for Psycho. Uh, Psycho just a few years prior was the first time a toilet was used in a, a film. So true. Sixties yeah. was all kinds of perverse. Yeah. So we frequently have movies that are cited as those big game changers. This one should be included more. If nothing else, take that away from this episode. Easy Rider gets all the credit. Midnight Cowboy, The Graduate. This mattered. This was um, a big deal. Yeah. Glad we covered it. I think probably because of the true crime side of it, I think that might be the only reason that people, like, it's almost like they, they don't want to glorify the crime, but it, I mean, it's still a good movie. Well, I think, too, all of the other ones were. were drenched in sex and the love generation. So it's way more romantic to wax on those, but this was breaking from the studio system and a lot of the restrictions of movies that people have been watching for decades. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's got firm footing in the history of that and should be mentioned much more often for movies that were really flipping the switch. Mm -hmm. Good yeah. times. Yeah. Well, wrapping up here for it now, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, just a couple notes on the film. It was interesting that they included a line that's in the book that evidently was actually said, but that they were going to go to this house, get the money from the safe, and then blast hair all yes. over the walls. And it's just such a grim line. I mm -hmm. mean, like they, like, uh, 
Who said it, Vinny? Yeah, he went there with the intention to just really do something nasty. Yeah. And it just kind of lets you, it gives another glimpse back to really how fucked up of a character he actually was. Like you said, dumb, but charismatic. I mean, he could have been a Charles Manson. You know what I mean? Like right. He could have. Which it also lends itself to this was more than just trying to get money. There's something wrong there. Yeah. This isn't somebody just killing for, for business. You know the means to the end. Well, I mean, like they, they that's a weird thing to say beforehand. They could yeah. have easily put masks on and tie the family up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they'd probably still be alive. In the weird or, idea, or had lived much longer, they wouldn't have went down the path they did. In the film shows too, what a lot of people thought weird about the scene was that this idea that they put that old box down to, as they say in the film, to keep them comfy, to let uh, Herb and his son. Um, as they knelt down, not have to be like on the hard floor. And I can't remember whose idea that was, if that was Hickok or if that was Smith. Probably Smith. Yeah, I think so. He seemed more conflicted with. Yeah, Smith is the one who's conflicted the whole time. They show that very well throughout the film because Hickok wants to rape the daughter and Smith's like, hey, nah, bro, that's not what we're about. You know, that's not what I'm about. You know, you may be, but we're not doing that. So it's interesting that I think the dynamic that the film portrays is that Hickok is the psychopath, but when it comes time to do the killing, Smith does the shooting and you're not expecting that. Yeah. Um, I thought that was uh, worth pointing out. But the other thing uh, is I just love the little side quest of them collecting bottles in the desert. I thought it was uh, really weird that uh, you said <laughs> what, not what they're about. And it, it made me think of like the sticky bandits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. right. We're not the rabie bandits. This right. is uh, a <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, that, that little bottle interlude. It kind of reminds me of talking of other Game Changer films, Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they have that really weird scene with the bicycle and sun drop, or raindrops keep falling on my head. Like yeah. It's just like, didn't expect that in the cowboy movie. Yeah. It's what's in the, um, didn't expect the fun scene, gathering bottles with the cute kid in the desert uh, to throw me off a little bit. Let's get back to the murder people. Right. right. Yeah. And I love that... Uh, uh, Dickacock says <laughs> right before they get busted in Las Vegas, come on, man, I got a little bit of money. Let's go to the tables. I'm feeling lucky. And then they get pulled over. <laughs> so uh, that's what I thought about this movie film. Bit much, isn't it? If you're uh, interested in the sequel, uh, it hasn't been made yet, but uh, Robert Blake <laughs> in uh, 2001. Oh, yeah, we uh, should mention that. So uh, apparently he did not, as he's been acquitted, did not kill his wife who was shot at a restaurant. Um, and the reason that they know that he didn't is because he didn't have his gun with him. He had forgot it at the restaurant. Um, as you do. But yeah, uh, uh, let's be real. Like, I, mean, I, I think that he got out of the, um, the original trial, but I think that it was sued by family. Which is usually what happens when civil suit the civil people one hundred percent know that you're guilty. Um, it was that whole just period of time where celebrities oh yeah were going on murder trials. It was a weird time. OJ yeah. obviously, Phil Spector. Mm -hmm. I just it was odd. Yeah, I'm shocked. Uh, Al Pacino hasn't played put a crazy on wig uh, and played uh, Robert Spector. Blake yet. Oh, right. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beretta did that shit. <laughs> so, well, any any thoughts? Any more thoughts on the film? In Code Blood. I would recommend both if you're interested. Read the book; it's excellent. Um, but definitely the movie. Did anybody I, 
No, I'm sorry. I think books are for nerds. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the movie's so good. Well, I'm glad that you asked Paul for that comment. Yeah, I would, I would say uh, there's all kinds of, because the whole Capote end of it, too, uh, which, uh, again, there's the, the dueling films. So I think one of one of the films plays more into the, um, Vinny, what's the name again? So uh, the one is just straight up, I think, like there's even a little bit of a couple scenes where he's just straight up seducing Capote. And I think that's the Sandra Bullock with the, the weird little dude playing yeah. Capote, but... I can't think of the name of that one at all, but uh, they came out at the same time. And both films are actually decent, but it's just the, the other one's way better. I think Capote got a few Oscar nods, didn't it? Uh, yeah. I think yeah. it was even for Best Picture. Won. Yeah, Hoffman won Best Actor. And that was almost like a, just a couple of years prior to his death, I think. Uh, a little longer, but yeah. Um, not too far. <laughs> no, this is like a uh, yes. friendly argument. He barely was in the Hunger Games and out. Because Capote came out in like 04, 05, and then he died in 13 or 14. Your off. So, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, it's no big deal. We're just talking about how 10 years is short earlier. So, is it because I'm talking about a timeline? You got to argue. You're short. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so did anybody revisit Capote for this? Never seen it. I did not. I wanted to, but just didn't get the chance because I remember Capote being a really good film. Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. So we'll have to do a, a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next round table. <laughs> films about films about films. Yeah. So uh all right. Any more thoughts on the subject here? No. I think we're good. Okay. Good episode. Um, you know, a book that invented the true crime genre that put us at this table here today to talk about this. So, uh, signing off for the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner. Been joined by Professor Mike Zapp. Venomous Vinny. Hot Toddy. Stay scary. Free Britain. Dick Cock.